Good morning. For those of you that may be just joining us for the first time, either in person here or uh, online, we are continuing our study in the book of Daniel. We're looking at the first seven chapters of this amazing little Old Testament book. C.S. Lewis called it the greatest sin, and for good reason, because it was the sin that brought about Lucifer's fall and the fall of the entire human race. In writing about this sin and his book, Mere Christianity, he said this, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault that makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking of is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison to it. Pride is what caused the devil to become the devil. And pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And if you're here this morning or watching online and you're thinking you're free from this sin, well, then you just proved that you are not. Perhaps nobody understood the foolishness of pride any more than King Nebuchadnezzar. A man who learned the hard way that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Because God will not share his glory with another, he humbles the proud and he exalts the humble. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time together this morning and for your word to us. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be our teacher and our guide, that you would reveal uh, truth to us about who you are, about who we are and what you require of us. Lord, open up our, our ears and our eyes and our minds this morning that we might receive from you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Chapter uh, 4 of Daniel takes place about 20 years after the end of chapter 3. 
So Daniel kind of just kind of skips over uh, many years in writing his book. And this chapter is unique in many ways, but probably the thing that stands out to you, and I don't know if you caught it in your reading, but this chapter is written in primarily in the first person, but from the perspective of King Nebuchadnezzar. As you begin to read the chapter, it's as if Nebuchadnezzar is writing the book of Daniel. Now this is a royal document. It is a letter that was written or dictated by the king after the events that are described in this chapter take place. And it's, if, if you'd like, you can view chapter four as the personal testimony of King Nebuchadnezzar, of how God humbled him and how he raised him up again. And as far as the, the structure of the letter, the outline letter, the letter begins uh, with praise to God. And it ends the same way it begins, with another doxology, with another praise to God. And in between, what we have is the king has another dream. And again, chapter 4 parallels chapter 2. And after the dream, there's an interpretation of the dream. And then there's the fulfillment of the dream. And then the king's subsequent restoration. But more on that in just a little bit. So let's begin with a prologue of praise. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Daniel chapter 4. Again, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version this morning. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth... Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Now this letter is written to the same group of people that the king wrote to in chapter 3. Um, all peoples, everywhere. And when you stop to think about it, that's quite a reach. I mean, this is really incredible because there was no internet, there was no social media, and yet the king was able to get out this word to all peoples, all nations, and in all languages. Pretty impressive. And he begins with a salutation and a greeting of peace, which in itself is a little bit odd knowing what we know about the king. And then he lays out his reason for the letter. And it's simply this. The king wants everyone, everywhere, to know what the most high God has done for him. And I'd like you to pay attention to that title as we work through the chapter because it occurs six times. The most high God is referred to six times in this chapter. So after the initial prologue of praise, we come to the king's vision in verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. And I saw a dream that made me afraid. Sound familiar? 
As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians and the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw, and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was very great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to the heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Once again, the king has a dream, and once again, he is terrified, and once again, he calls for his wise men, and once again, they cannot interpret the king's dream. But at last, Daniel arrives, and the king tells him his dream, and and, and I don't know if you noticed there, but when he talks about the tree in the midst of the earth and its height was real great, uh, and then in verse 11, it says its top reached to the heavens. Again, it brings back the, the picture or the image of the Tower of Babel that we talked about last week. Well, the king adds, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and I behold a watcher, a holy one came down from heaven and he proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze. Amid the tender grass of the field, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. And let his mind be changed from a man's. And let it, a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. Well, you can kind of understand now why the king was afraid why his dream troubled him. Just as in his first dream, he has an inkling, this concerns him. That he might, he, he just might be this tree. And he doesn't like this last part. The first part, again, fine. This last part, not so much. And he refers to a watcher. And 
in the original languages, it's an old Aramaic word that basically is referring to angelic beings. And notice that the tree was to be chopped down, not killed. And we know that because it says, leave the stump with its roots in the earth. And anybody who's ever cut down a tree and not actually, you know, taken that stump out, um, uh, things can start sprouting up all over your yard. And also, we see that this, the, 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 because the tree has been cut down, it no longer is able to provide shade. It's no longer able to provide the food. But the stump was not to be removed, but secured with bands of iron and bronze. And then if you notice in verse 15, the picture changes. It becomes clear that the tree is in fact a man. And we know that because of the use of the personal pronouns in place of the tree. The pronouns his and, and him. And by the fact that it says that his human mind would become like that of an animal. So the tree is in fact a person. Now the text doesn't specify how long these seven periods of times were. Some people think... It was seven years. But the text doesn't say. It could be seven months. Could be seven moons. It, it, it might not be seven anything. And the reason why is because in Scripture, the number seven often signifies completeness. So it very well may be that Nebuchadnezzar would simply suffer this condition until it produced the desired effect or until it brought about um, the purpose for which God had sent the dream and, and, and God's purpose is being accomplished in Nebuchadnezzar. These, these are the types of things that you don't want to get hung up on as you study Scripture, Okay? You don't want to start speculating about these types of things. Why? Because it's not the main point. It's not why it's been communicated to us. So we don't know, so we don't want to go too far with that. Verse 17. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. The decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over it, sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation. Because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now the last half of verse 17 is really the key to understanding this chapter. Uh, it's repeated two more times in this chapter. In verse 25, also in verse 32. Now, the reason for the dream and its fulfillment was so that the king and all those who would hear this story would know 
that the most high God rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. In the, in the phrase that you see, the sentence is by decree of the watchers. It doesn't mean that the sentence was handed down um, by decree of the watchers. As, as, um, as clearly as it's stated here, it's, it's really saying that it was declared by the watchers, but the decree comes from the Most High God. And you see that in verse 24 if you look ahead. Daniel makes it clear. He says, it is the decree of the Most High. So a better translation might read that this sentence is communicated or declared by the watchers, by these angelic beings. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. You see, the king misunderstood Daniel's reaction. Daniel didn't have difficulty interpreting the dream because God gave him the understanding. God gave him the interpretation and the news wasn't good. Not for the king anyway. And, and Daniel, despite everything that the king had done to him and his people, he was alarmed he was fearful. He was concerned for the king. See, Daniel had a heart like Jesus, a heart of compassion. And not just for those who loved him, but even for his enemies, even for his captors. He genuinely cared about the king. He had compassion on him. And therefore, he says what he says. He, he is, in a sense, saying, I, I, I wish this would apply to somebody else. I wish this was not about you, O king. So Daniel goes on to interpret the king's vision. And he tells him plainly in verse 22, that large, strong tall tree you saw, O king, it's you. You're the tree. And I think Daniel would have just confirmed what the king suspected was the case. Let's drop down to verse 24. It says, this is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins 
by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel reminds me very much of uh, John the Baptist or Jesus for that matter because he was a bold and fearless proclaimer of the truth. You gotta remember who Daniel's talking to. He's talking to the most powerful man on earth at the time. And yet Daniel doesn't sugarcoat this message. He doesn't appear to be fearful for his life. His only concern is for the king. And his feelings for the king, this is, this is the interesting thing, because sometimes when our, our heart is involved, we can shy away from telling people things that they don't want to hear because we don't want to hurt them. And so we, we can kind of not be as forthcoming. That's that Daniel. Daniel doesn't have that concern. In fact, it's really because he cares for the king that he tells him the truth. I mean, when you stop to think about it, that makes perfect sense. If we really cared about the lost, we would tell them that they need Jesus. We would share the gospel with them. We would tell them what they need to hear, even if they don't want to hear it. Because if they don't hear it, they can't respond to it. And if they can't respond to it, there's no hope for them. He had the courage and the compassion to tell the king the truth. And I think Daniel's heart here and and his actions are a reminder for us that, that we too need to speak the truth in love. We, we don't use the truth as a, as a baseball bat to beat people into submission. You know, we don't, we don't just give them the truth of God's word, you know, to make them angry. We, we do it out of love. We speak the truth in love. Christians have a responsibility to proclaim the good news of Jesus, but to appreciate the good news of Jesus you have to know the bad news. You have to be aware that there is bad news before you will appreciate the good news. And, and when you think about it, people who don't know Christ, they need to know several things that we can shy away from. But like Daniel, we, we, we need to be bold proclaimers of the truth, knowing that our motive is love. Our motive is compassion. People need to know that God is holy and that hell is hot. People need to know that in their current spiritual condition, they are alienated from God. They are at enmity with God. God is not their friend, no matter how much they may think so. And that they need to know that by their disobedience, they are storing up wrath for the day of judgment. This is why we need both compassion and courage. You know, when it comes to 
to, to sharing the gospel, sometimes we're so concerned that we're going to hurt somebody's feeling. We're going to alienate people. I'm going to lose a friend. I'm this, that, and the other other thing. So we, we just kind of make the gospel all about God's love for you. God loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, he does. And it begins with you repenting of your sins. It's not just that God is a God of love. God is holy. And, and, and scripture makes it clear that God will judge the living and the dead. Do you see the mercy of God in these verses, by the way? Daniel tells the king that all of this is going to happen because God wants to humble him so that if he responds accordingly, God can lift him up again. The king will only suffer for a time until he acknowledges that the most high God is the one who rules over the kingdom of men. See, there's an end to this for the king. He needs to acknowledge that God alone determines who will sit on the thrones of men. God is remarkably merciful here. He's remarkably long-suffering here, but so too is Daniel. And this is wonderful because... Daniel is endeavoring to be like his God. And we see that here. Again, it's so easy for us to want the wicked to get what they deserve. You know, when I get cut off as I'm driving, you know, I'm not usually blessing the guy in front of me. <laughs> unless, unless I use the southern approach, oh, bless your heart, you know. <laughs> we know what that really means. Um, but, you know, and I... There are, there are people in my life right now, and I'm sure there are people in your life um, that are wicked. They're just wicked or evil. And uh, they're a real thorn in the flesh. And you may be tempted. God, take them out. <laughs> I have. I just wish I could call down fire, you know? And then I think about Jesus' words to his disciples, you know, you know not what spirit you are of. And Daniel here does not wish harm upon the king. He has compassion on him. And when we're tempted to, to want to see the wicked get their just desserts, we need to remember something. We need to remember that we were the wicked ones once. But God had mercy on us. And he lavished his grace upon us. And some of you who know Christ, you might have been a lost cause to somebody else. There are people, including my own father, who I thought he's never going to come to faith in Christ. And yet God did it. Nobody is so far gone that God can't reach him you may not live to see it, but it can happen. And so don't rejoice that the wicked will be judged. Rather, rejoice in that God is full of mercy, that he had compassion on you, and that we should have compassion for those still in bondage to sin. 
Daniel goes on to urge the king, gives him some good advice, and he says, you need to repent now. You need to begin practicing righteousness now. You need to show mercy now. Daniel is basically telling the king, from his perspective, king, you can, you can, you can take the easy way or you can take the hard way. If you repent, if you do what God wants you to do, perhaps there might be a lengthening of your prosperity. There might be a lengthening to your reign. I don't know. Perhaps the king, however, chooses the hard way. Look at verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is, this, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Nebuchadnezzar has a, has a very short memory. He clearly has forgotten the lessons he learned in chapters 2 and 3. He failed to remember his own words that he spoke about the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And now a whole year goes by. And he evidently forgot the admonition of Daniel or he chose to ignore it. So while taking a walk on the roof of his royal palace, one of several, He's walking around and he begins to boast about his greatness and all that he has accomplished. He's essentially saying, wow, look at, look at all that I've done. Look what I built. Look at the magnificence of this city. And I built it all for my glory. Am I not the greatest king ever? Wow. And while these words were still in his mouth, a voice came from heaven and declared, and I paraphrase, time's up. Time's up. The most high God will not share his glory with another. It's time for you to learn that God will assuredly humble the proud and exalt the humble. So now we come to the fulfillment of the vision in verse 33. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle feathers. 
and his nails were like bird's claws. Can you kind of get the picture? This guy did not look good. It's believed by some that, that the king was actually struck with a, with a disease or a disorder known, known as uh, zoanthropy. I had to look that up, but it's a, it's a person who believes himself to be an animal. And then there are subcategories underneath that. Boanthropy is when a person imagines that he's a cow or a bull or an ox, a bovine. That's where the bow comes, bovine. Boanthropy. Maybe you've heard of lycanthropy. Um, if you're a fan of um, old uh, scary movies, the wolfman, okay? The werewolf. That's where it comes, lycanthropy. A person believes he or she is a wolf. Well, in any case, the king was stripped of everything that he held dear. He lost his palace, his power, his position, his authority, his wealth. Even his food was taken from him. He was made to be like a beast of the earth so that he became outwardly what he had been inwardly his entire life. Again, there's a lesson in this for us because how God dealt with Nebuchadnezzar, that should serve as a warning to us because God can deal with us the same way he dealt with Nebuchadnezzar if necessary. Doesn't necessarily mean he's gonna make you, uh, you know, think you're an animal. But God can deal with us any way he chooses if we fail to acknowledge him as the most high God, as the ruler over the kingdoms of men, as the ruler over our own lives. We must submit to him. And that's why the book of Proverbs says, proud people will be ruined but the humble will be honored. The apostle James tells us in his epistle, humble yourselves therefore before the Lord and he will exalt you. So this was Nebuchadnezzar's life for that seven periods of time. And then we come to the king's restoration in verse 34. At the end of the days, I... Nebuchadnezzar lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? You got to remember verse 32. Daniel had told the king that he would remain in this condition until... He acknowledged that the most high God rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whoever he wills. And that's exactly what the king does here. He finally, truly, genuinely acknowledges 
the God of heaven as the one true and living God. And then we come to the closing bookend, the final doxology in verse 36. At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me. And I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness, catch this, was added to me. He's changing the way he's referring to this greatness. It's not, there, there was more greatness that I accomplished. He said, no, more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. That in itself is a statement of humility because he's basically saying, I was so, so prideful and God has humbled me. See, God demonstrated his power and his authority over King Nebuchadnezzar's life and over his reign by humbling him and then by restoring his mind and his rule. The king learned his lesson that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you have received God's mercy and God's grace, then I encourage you to do what the king did here. Right? What did he do? He praised and extolled and honored the king of heaven. Oh, that we would be a people like that. Nebuchadnezzar's rule and his kingdom are no more. He's dead. He's gone. But the most high God is still on the throne. He still reigns. He is still Lord over the kingdoms of men. And as we've seen uh, in this chapter already, you know, we, we, this chapter points to Jesus in, in many ways. He is the king of heaven. And as we learned in chapter two, his kingdom is an eternal kingdom. The, the king admits it here. It's an everlasting kingdom. It, it will go on from generation to generation. I believe Jesus is also foreshadowed in verse 17, although it's not abundantly clear. See, God... God's, and throughout the Old Testament, you see it, you see it in the New Testament, throughout the Old Testament, God has a, a pattern of exalting the lowly, of taking the least of these, of taking what looks like we ought to just pass right over it, and he chooses it to accomplish his purposes, whether it be Abraham or Joseph or, or David or even Daniel here. And, and although God has chosen many lowly, humble men and set them over kingdoms throughout history, Jesus was the lowest. Jesus was the humblest of men. He came to earth as a tiny babe in a manger. He worked as a lowly carpenter for many years. 
He rode humbly into Jerusalem on a donkey before his crucifixion. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He was humbled and he humbled himself to the point of death on the cross so that you and I and all those who would repent of their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus would have everlasting life. You want a really fun exercise this week? Take time to go through chapter four and do a contrast between Nebuchadnezzar and Jesus. Try to see all the ways that they're different and just make a list of it. I think you'll be amazed. Lewis was right. Pride is the greatest sin. God hates pride for many reasons, but I think two of the chief is that it challenges his sovereignty and it robs him of his glory. And as we have seen, God will not give his glory to another. He will humble the proud and exalt the humble. If you're here this morning or watching online and you have not yet humbled yourself before the Lord Jesus, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins and obey the gospel of Jesus Christ so that you may avert your looming judgment and so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning and for your word to us. And uh, Lord, we just thank you for your servant, Daniel. The lessons that we have learned from looking at his life, the lessons that we've learned this morning from looking at the, the life of the king, but most importantly, the lessons that we've learned because we have seen you in this chapter. We have seen you and your glory and your character, your majesty and in your power and in your sovereignty. And Lord, we just bend our knees to you this morning and acknowledge that you are the most high God and that you are deserving of all of our praise. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.